literature. We have the Nancy Wilson Room, the Joe Williams Room, the Gloria Lynn Room, the Frank Sinatra Room, the B.B. King Blues Room, the James Baldwin Library, just to name a few. Join me Friday nights from 7 until 10 p.m. as I take you on a musical journey you'll never forget. Robin's Place. From WPFW News in Washington, this is Monday Morning QB, a news program with a point of view. Today is Monday, February 26, 2024. I'm Sue Goodwin. And I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Today on the show, how rapidly advancing AI technology will impact this year's election. Plus, Maryland's former Republican governor launches a Senate bid. And we remember Malcolm X following the 59th anniversary of his assassination. All that and more. Stay with us. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Citizens of dozens of countries, including the United States, will go to the polls this year and concerns are growing that the democratic process is at serious risk of being undermined. The threat that is gaining increasing attention is that of artificial intelligence in political campaigns and its ability to blur the line between fact and fiction, just as voters are hoping to make informed choices on their own futures. Numerous states are taking action, and just last week, 20 tech companies signed a voluntary pledge to adopt what they call reasonable precautions to prevent artificial intelligence tools from being used to disrupt democratic elections around the world. But will that go far enough? For insight into that question, we turn to Craig Holman. He is the government affairs lobbyist for Public Citizen in Washington, D.C., where he focuses on money in politics and governmental ethics. He has been central to efforts by Public Citizen to urge the Federal Elections Commission to take a significantly stronger role in regulating the use of deep fakes in campaign advertisements, and, as he explains it, for good reason. Well, we'll see. I am fully expecting this election cycle to be the first very significant AI election cycle that we've ever witnessed. Well, AI has been around for a while, but the technology just did leaps and bounds of advancement in this election cycle. You know, to tell the truth, I, I didn't realize how potentially dangerous it is to elections until until uh, just last year, uh, when right after Biden announced that he's uh, formally running for president again in 2024, the RNC produced an entirely fabricated AI commercial that uh, that was just so realistic. It looked like actual news stories. It showed Biden and Kamala Harris laughing in a room. And then it showed Wall Street collapsing under a financial crisis. And then China was bombing Taiwan. Thousands and thousands of immigrants flooding across the border. San Francisco went into lockdown because of the fentanyl crisis. And it all looked completely real. And this use of AI in campaign ads is not just happening in the context of national politics. A telling example of that surfaced a year ago in the lead-up to Chicago's mayoral election. That's when a deep-fake video impersonating moderate Democrat candidate Paul Vallis appeared online. The clip was played thousands of times before it was taken down, and while it's not clear what impact it had on the election, which Vallis lost, Craig Holman makes the point that there is a sobering takeaway in this story that is worthy of our attention. 
because, you know, these deep fakes, even though we're seeing most of them right now in the federal level, it's going to the states and localities as well. Uh, what we just saw in Chicago in the last mayoral election was one candidate, Paul Vallis, uh, was attacked by a completely fabricated deep fake as condoning police violence. You know, here he's running for mayor, and they've got his voice, you know, his image saying, you know, the police are cool, uh, so police violence is all right. You know, and uh, he, he lost the mayoral race. But, I mean, that just shows this isn't just going to stay in Washington, D.C. This is going to spread to the states and localities as well. And if that isn't bad enough, that artificial intelligence is already being misused to mislead voters about what a candidate actually said or stands for, there's also concern that deep fakes are being used to disrupt the electoral process itself. Yes, there is, and we've already seen that. Uh, that happened in New Hampshire during the primary. There was a deep fake of President Biden's voice on a robocall calling up Democrats throughout New Hampshire saying, don't bother voting, uh, save your vote till the general election. The whole purpose of that was to lower uh, Biden's, you know, uh, election results and hopefully have the Republicans come out gaining more votes in the primary itself. Uh, so th there we saw that. That was a deliberate effort to use a deep fake to disrupt the electoral process. Now, the company that put that out, it, it took a while to find them. Uh, you know, it took about a week before the Department of Justice could track them down. They're a company based in Texas, and they've done this type of thing before. But uh, they are likely to be held uh, legally liable for that because disrupting an election is a, a crime in itself. Another concern that Craig Holman brings to our attention especially when it comes to finding ways to limit the role of artificial intelligence in politics, is the influential role of dark money. Yes, I think we are going to see that happen. First of all, candidates would be held to a higher ethical uh, standard than outside groups. So I suspect candidates may not abuse this as often as what we'll see outside groups do. However, we've already seen candidates abusing this. Uh, you know, not only, well, not only did the RNC just put out that beat Biden ad, but DeSantis produced uh, some AI phony ads that showed, uh, that showed Donald Trump hugging and kissing Dr. Fauci, you know, and, and it never, never happened. You know, so we are seeing candidates come out with some of these ads, but the real threat are those that are the, like the dark money groups, the groups that we don't know who they are, that we can't hold accountable. Those are the ones that are going to really, really abuse uh, this artificial intelligence when it comes to campaign ads. Many, many of these groups, you know, we've seen already when it comes to independent expenditures, straightforward independent expenditures, will suddenly appear like a month before the election, make these million-dollar expenditures, and then disappear right after the election. They're not held accountable. There is no ethical standard that is applied to them. And if we don't have rules or laws on the books that require disclosure in these deep fake uh, ads, uh, they're going to get away with it. So what is to be done? If it were up to the tech companies, self-regulation is the route to go as opposed to more legal enforcement. And to that end, earlier this month, 20 of the world's leading tech companies, including Microsoft, Meta, Google, Amazon, X, OpenAI, and TikTok, unveiled an agreement aimed at mitigating the risk of AI interfering in elections. The accord, announced at the Munich Security Conference, included the company's commitments to collaborate on AI detection tools 
and efforts to label AI-generated content, but it did not call for a ban on election-related AI content, which is just one of its limitations. And there's going to be other emerging uh, tech companies as as this whole AI industry grows that'll be uh, suddenly on the scene and may or may not work out any kind of agreement for regulating deepfake ads on their social media platform. You know, furthermore, whatever the uh, the six big tech companies come up with, it doesn't include television and radio. So we, you know, it, it's good that the big tech companies are considering doing some sort of self-regulation, but it's not going to be enough. We need to actually have laws and rules on the books. Which is why Public Citizen is urging the Federal Election Commission to formally affirm that deep fakes in U.S. political campaign communications are illegal. But as Craig Holman acknowledges, coming up with the kind of rules that meet the urgency of the moment is likely to be an uphill battle, at least at the federal level. Uh, Yeah, I filed a petition with the Federal Election Commission asking for uh, some rules coming out of the FEC to try to regulate deep fakes in the 2024 election that's coming up. I've also been trying to promote legislation through Congress, but as you know, Congress is very slow at acting. So I'm not expecting any of the legislation to get through Congress in time for the 2024 election. The FEC could act faster, and they could actually come up with some regulations. Uh, However, their statutory authority is very limited. Uh, The only law I could find on the books that gives the FEC statutory authority over regulating deepfakes is the fraudulent misrepresentation law. And it does indeed give the FEC statutory authority, but only when it comes to dealing with candidates, not with outside groups. So even if the FEC were to act and to come out with a a good rule on on fraudulent misrepresentation, that rule is going to be limited anyway. So uh, it, it won't be enough, but... You know, I'm I'm really hoping the FEC will act on this. However, it it's it's starting to look like that might not happen. The last I heard is the FEC, if they're going to pick it up, and they may just say no, uh, they're going to start dealing with it in the beginning of the summer. Well, they've got to go through months of taking public comments, months of deliberation. And we're going to be in the 2024 election before the FEC even comes out with any final ruling. So I don't have a whole lot of hope at the federal level. And that's why Public Citizen is also working at the state level to get state laws on the books. And here they are seeing some progress. Right now, there are five states and only five states that have any law on the books that regulates deep fakes, usually within 90 days of an, of an election. And usually there are disclosure requirements that a deep fake can be used within 90 days of an election, but voters and people watching the ad or the communication have to be informed that this is entirely fabricated by computer technology and didn't really happen. Uh, However, only five states have those types of laws. Uh, That means almost throughout the whole rest of the country, these outside groups can get away with running deep fake ads without any kind of disclosure. But on the good side is, you know, public citizen drafted a model law designed for the states And at this point, we've got 30 more states that have introduced legislation to set up some sort of transparency requirement for deep fakes. Each of the laws are different, of course. I mean, it depends on what the state legislators want to come up with. But at least we're getting the states talking about it and considering it. Uh, We can't wait for the federal government to come out with some reasonable regulation on this. So hopefully we can get enough states out there uh, requiring disclosure on deep fakes so voters have a chance to know what's real and what isn't. Because 
As Craig Holman reminds us, if artificial intelligence continues unhindered to spread false information in elections, there's more at stake than knowing what is true or not about a particular candidate. And by the way, I mean, why it's such a risk and a danger to our democracy isn't just because they can deceive voters, which it can, but it's also because voters already, a lot of voters, have so little confidence in the merit of our elections that that's going to become compounded. If voters are suddenly hearing and seeing things on TV that didn't happen and that's misleading them into voting one way or the other, they're going to start waking up again and saying elections really aren't fair. They don't work. And once once the American public loses confidence in elections, democracy is in dire risk. Craig Holman is the government affairs lobbyist for Public Citizen in Washington, D.C., where he focuses on money in politics and governmental ethics. To learn more about Public Citizen's work on this issue, visit their website at www.citizen.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Former Maryland Governor Republican Larry Hogan made a surprise announcement earlier this month, throwing his hat in the race to fill the Senate seat of retiring Democrat Ben Cardin. Just last year, the two-term governor denied in an interview that he wanted to be a senator. But in his video announcement, Hogan said he is running, quote, not to serve one party, but to stand up to both parties, fight for Maryland, and fix our nation's broken politics, end quote. To learn more about how Democrats in Maryland are reacting, reporter Asia Beckham spoke with Rushern Baker, former leader of Prince George's County, a heavily Democratic area known for its wealthy Black population. I'm Sharon Baker. I'm the former county executive of Prince George's County, Maryland, and uh, that's who I am. Can you speak to Governor Larry Hogan's bid for Senate, a seat that he said he would never run for? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people... Um, we're surprised that he actually entered his name into the into the contest because for years now he has uh, indicated he, he was not going to run for the Senate or uh, any other office other than he was you know looking at the presidency. Clearly, I think that was a, a major uh, shockwave to to the state and to folks in Prince George's County because you know he did leave as one of the more popular governors, Larry Hogan. Uh, even though he was a Republican, he served two terms, which is something that hadn't happened in probably 40 years or something like that. Um, so people were surprised. I mean, it means that there's a real race, not just in the primary, but also in the general. That, you know, normally what would happen in a state like Maryland is if you won the primary, the Democrat would win the general. This clearly makes it a competitive race. I think the two Democratic candidates that we have running have their you know pluses and minuses against Governor Hogan. Probably the one that I know the best is the current county executive, Angela Osselbrooks, um, who's been in office uh, a little less than six years. And, um, you know, a state's attorney when I was county executive, so I got to know her very well. Very, very qualified, very progressive in, in moving things forward. So somebody that I think a lot of people rallied around as you know, the the, uh, the favorite in the um, Democratic primary. Um, her challenger or the challenger in there, David Trone, is also well-known, you know, popular, you know, I think six-term congressman from, you know, Montgomery County and Western Maryland, uh, very rich, um, very progressive. And so um, I think most people thought it would be a battle between those two as to, who would take the seat and then they would eventually win. So this means no matter who wins the Democratic primary, they have to turn around and get ready for a very competitive general election. Um, in the case of David Trone, that's not a big deal since he's a billionaire. In the case of uh, Angela Osselbrook, it means that there will be a lot of fundraising 
for the primary and for the general. Can you sort of speak to Hogan's position on abortion rights and also sort of Maryland's position on uh, abortion rights? Yeah, I think I think that's where the, the race is going to turn for the Democrats. I think this is unlike when um, Governor Hogan ran for governor. Your policies and beliefs were just confined to the state of Maryland. Um, but now, given the national election and the fact that a woman's right to choose uh, is being attacked everywhere around this country, it becomes really critical that the Senate, at least for those of us who believe in a woman's right to choose and who are Democrats, that that the, that the Senate stays Democratic and hopefully we flip the House. I bring that up because I think that's where Governor Hogan is going to find you know, some pushback. It's one thing to say that you're not going to change the laws of the state of Maryland as governor. It's another to be the deciding vote that gives Mitch McConnell a chance to control the Senate and possibly appoint you know, more folks, more conservatives on the Supreme Court if Donald Trump wins. So I think that's where voters, you know, they may not look at it right now, but certainly that's going to be an issue in the general. The other thing that Governor Hogan has to look out for is on his right flank. I mean, his position on a woman's right to choose an abortion is far from what the Republican Party of Maryland looks at right now. They're more to the right of where Governor Hogan is. So even though he's popular, um, he's not had to face a, a Republican primary in uh in the last eight years. So I think he'll get some pushback from even from his uh, fellow Republicans in the in the Republican primary. I mean, so I think that one issue is going to be the thing that may be his undoing in both the primary and in the general. During his tenure as governor, Larry Hogan became a national figure and one of the rare Republicans to challenge President Donald Trump in the media. What's the relationship like between former Governor Larry Hogan and former President Donald Trump? It's very clear that, you know, Governor Hogan did not have a good relationship with um, with with the former President Trump. And um, it has served Governor Hogan well when he was running for governor here. You know, it made Democrats feel less, you know, hostile toward him. Uh, and voting for him in a general election. The problem is, if you look, go back and look at the latest, the last gubernatorial election, Governor Hogan handpicked a candidate uh, who shared his more moderate views, uh, at least for Republicans, um, a very qualified person, um, you know, who lost handedly to a Trump-endorsed uh, candidate for a governor. So it means to me, at least, is that the Republican Party in Maryland is much like the Republican Party uh, throughout the country and that it's a Trump party. And so, um, you know, even with Governor Hogan's popularity, he couldn't get his candidate across, uh, you know, the finish line in a primary. And I think it's those voters haven't changed. That election was just two years ago for governor um, and uh, Dan Cox was the nominee who clearly was not was at odds with Governor Hogan and was aligned with with Donald Trump. So I think it means for for, for as Governor Hogan is putting his campaign together, the first issue he's going to have is winning the primary and solidifying the Republican base that is now more to the right than it was when he was first elected governor. Last month, Hogan endorsed South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley for president. What's your take so far in the election race? And who do you think is projected to win? So on the presidential race, I think, you know, even though it was tight right now, I think that, um, you know, that, you know, Biden's in a great position to win, probably based on the issues. I think whether it's, you know, the economy, which is doing well, but especially issues of, you know, a, a woman's right to choose and and which is going to be critical. And as you look at what what's happened in Alabama now with abortion rights and, and vitro fertilization, uh, the Supreme Court 
you know, making Alabama Supreme Court making uh, decisions that seem draconian. I think, you know, it comes down to in a handful of states whether you want to turn back. And I think this was the same issue that put um, President Biden over the top the last time. And I think it's going to be the deciding factors uh, in this upcoming election. It's going to be tight, much tighter than many of us would want. Um, but I do believe that, you know, um, President Biden is, is going to be um, is going to be reelected. But that's why a position in a safe state like Maryland, a Senate position, has to go to a Democrat. Um, and I think you will see that no matter who wins the primary, Democratic primary, you'll see national figures coming to campaign like never before in Maryland because it's just too important to have, especially if Governor Hogan is the nominee on the Republican side of Maryland. Um, you're going to see people from former President Obama to everyone else um, coming the campaign here. It gives an opportunity for someone like, you know, County Executive Angela also brooks a, a chance to really speak to this issue in, in a in a way that's um that I think will resonate. So I think, you know, Hogan jumping into the race, I think makes it maybe maybe helps her in the sense that it gives people a chance to see, you know, how she would do against a Hogan uh candidacy, especially around that critical issue of a woman's right to choose. And Rashern Baker, anything else that you want to mention that I may not have asked during this interview, whether it be related to Hogan, uh, Prince George's County, or the presidential race? I, I think the one thing, and I will, I've said it before, and I will leave with this. I think the whole issue of uh, a woman's right to choose is going to be even more important in this cycle than it was in the previous one, uh, simply because of the Supreme Court rulings. Um there, you know, you tie that in with what's going on with personal freedoms, you know, some of the LGBTQ issues that we see rolling back across those 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 rights rolling, being rolled back across the country are going to put places, importance into states that heretofore probably weren't important in presidential election, Maryland being one. It's always seen as a safe Democratic seat. I think you will see places like Maryland become important. Um, and Senate race is more important than they ever had before as a check on whoever might be the president. So I think civil rights and a woman's right to choose are, are going to be really critically important. And, and, and you're going to see a, a, a lot of push uh, in this election to get people to come out. I'm Asia Beckham for Monday Morning QB. Last Wednesday, February 21st, marked the 59th anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X, the revered black nationalist leader who was gunned down at age 39 in New York City. Three men were convicted of the murder, but last year, two of them were exonerated. And just last week, Malcolm X's family and attorney Benjamin Crump announced new evidence in their investigation into his killing. Two former members of Malcolm's security detail have come forward alleging they were arrested by the NYPD on false pretenses mere days before the assassination, they say in an effort to ensure the attack was successful. One of the men, Khalil Sultan Saeed, shared his story with reporters last week. From its creation in 1964 to 1965, I attended public events organized by the Organization of Afro-American Unity. The OAAU, founded by El Haji Malik Shabazz, Malcolm X. It was widely known by my acquaintances that I had deep fondness for Malcolm X, as I spoke frequently with respect for Malcolm X, and I always made an effort to attend his speeches. In or about January 1965, I attended public I attended public events, I'm sorry, 
On on about January 1965, I was introduced to Raymond A. Wood. I only interacted with Wood on approximately two occasions. Robert Collier, a new acquaintance, told me that he wanted to introduce me to his friend who had some ideas. This friend was Raymond Wood. When Collier introduced me to Wood, I had only known Collier for two or three months. Collier was invite, also invited Walter Bowe to attend. Since Wood was undercover, I had no idea he worked for law enforcement. I later found out Wood was an undercover police agent, uh, I'm sorry, Wood was an undercover police officer from the, from the New York City Police Department and the Bureau of Special Services and Investigations. The idea Wood introduced was a conspiracy to destroy national monuments, specifically the Statue of Liberty. Those at the meeting laughed, so I assumed Wood was not serious about this idea. I said very little at the meeting. In the weeks leading up to my wrongful arrest and incarceration, I never heard the idea again. I was asked by a close follower of Malcolm X to serve as security at Malcolm X's home after it was firebombed on February 14, 1965. I was offered this opportunity because it was widely known that I respected Malcolm X and was interested in the OAAU. It was a small group of individuals who were asked to serve as security for Malcolm X's home. Only two or three individuals per shift. I would always have made myself available to serve as security for Malcolm X as I had I, I, was, I would always have made myself available to serve as Malcolm X security had I not been wrong, wrongfully arrested. It was widely known that Malcolm X's life was frequently in danger and under constant threat. On or about February 16, 1965, five days before Malcolm X's assassination, I was detained and arrested by the New York City Police Department related to the Woods conspiracy. I was shocked to hear the New York Police Department accusing me of conspiracy to destroy the Statue of Liberty. I lost 18 months of my young life for a crime I did not commit. I was only 22 years old at the time of my arrest. I spent four years as a student at Howard University working toward the degree in electrical engineering. I was helping my father during, I was helping my father in his store during a gap year in my studies when I was arrested. As a result of my detention, I never graduated from Howard University. I believe I was detained in this conspiracy by the NYPD, boss and FBI, in order to ensure Malcolm X's planned assassination would be successful. Had I not been arrested, I would have attended his speech and could have served as part of his security detail. Attorney Benjamin Crump has pledged to continue seeking information from the Department of Justice about the names of undercover federal and local agents who were present at Malcolm X's assassination. And now we hear from Malcolm himself in this excerpt from his 1964 speech, By Any Means Necessary. One of the first things that the independent African nations did was to form an organization called the Organization of African Unity. The purpose of our organization of Afro-American Unity, which has the same aim and objective, to fight whoever gets in our way. Western Hemisphere and first 
here in the United States and bring about the freedom of these people by any means necessary. the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the Constitution of the United States, and the Bill of Rights are the principles in which we believe and that these documents, if put into practice, represent the essence of mankind's hopes and, uh, and good intentions, desirous that all Afro-American people and organizations should henceforth unite so that the welfare and well-being of our people will be assured we are resolved to reinforce the common bond of purpose between our people by submerging all of our differences and establishing non-sectarian constructive programs for human rights. We hereby present this charter, number one, the establishment. The organization of Afro-American unity shall include all people of African descent in the Western Hemisphere. In essence, what it is saying, instead of you and me running around here seeking allies in our struggle for freedom, in the Irish neighborhood, or the Jewish neighborhood, or the Italian neighborhood, we need to, we need to seek some allies among people who look something like we do. And once we get their allies, it's time out for you and me to stop running away from the wolf right into the arms of the fox, looking for some kind of help. That's a drag. Number two, Self-defense. Since self-preservation is the first law of nature, we assert the Afro-Americans' right to self-defense. The Constitution of the United States of America clearly affirms the right of every American citizen to bear arms. And as Americans, we will not give up a single right guaranteed under the Constitution. The history, the history of unpunished violence against our people clearly indicates that we must be prepared to defend ourselves or we will continue to be a defenseless people at the mercy of a ruthless and violent racist mob. After decades of stalled attempts in Congress to advance some form of reparations for slavery and its legacy, dozens of efforts at the state and local level are now moving forward. Just last month, California lawmakers introduced a comprehensive reparations package aimed at addressing historical injustices against black communities in their state Other states, like New York, Colorado, and Massachusetts, have commissioned reparations studies or task forces. Universities across the country are also studying their relationship to slavery and asking how to atone. Among the first was Virginia Theological Seminary. In 2019, VTS announced the creation of an endowment dedicated to the payment of reparations to black people who labored on campus during slavery, and in 2021, those payments began going out. That's when reporter Amara Evering filed this report for Monday Morning QB. Not too long ago, Linda J. Thomas received $2,100 in her mailbox addressed to her from the Virginia Theological Seminary 
the place where her grandfather, John Samuel Thomas Jr., worked as a janitor. Linda said that her grandfather had dreams of becoming a minister, but was barred from applying to the very institution that he labored in. Well, today, Linda is joined by 14 others whose families have stories like her grandfather, and all of these individuals are now receiving cash payments in the mail as part of Virginia Theological Seminary's reparations program in recognition of exploited Black laborers, paid and unpaid. I spoke with Ebony Davis, Associate for Programming and Reparations Research at the Virginia Theological Seminary about this program. Reparations has been a part of the conversation amongst Black people since the end of the Civil War. And we've seen the efforts like H.R. 40 and whatnot be a part of the larger national conversation for 30 or more years now. It's just always been a part of the conversation. It's in the discussion. We're talking and we're talking and we're researching and we're learning what no one was ever doing. And then when they started doing, it was kind of like, here's a scholarship, go better yourself. And that's great. We have to start somewhere. But the cash payment is where the disbelief comes in for me, even as someone who is, you know, directly working within this. It's kind of like they're handing out money. And they're literally handing out money. No strings attached and no applications needed. That's what makes this program so groundbreaking. And though the money may not be life-changing to some, and certainly does not change the past for any, Ebony still believes that this work is important. While the money is a big part of this, most people seem to be excited about the acknowledgement and the recognition of their ancestor and what they did. Because in their eyes, their ancestor, be it their great-grandfather that they did know or a great-great-grandmother that they never met, they were giants in their eyes and they were heroes in their community. And though they may have been heroes inside their homes, at the seminary where they worked, they were exploited. What they did, it kind of runs the gamut from all of the service positions. The seminary was sustained by Black labor, paid and unpaid be it all of the agricultural needs with the farm and all of the livestock, laundry, domestic service, like being your valet or your driver or your blacksmith or your horse trainer, your laundress, anything you can imagine, any job that needed to be done in terms of sustaining an institution was done by Black people who were paid much less than their white counterparts. Though the descendants that are currently receiving checks are from the Reconstruction and Jim Crow era, there is certainly evidence that slavery existed at the seminary as well. So the seminary was founded in 1823, and a lot of the construction of the early buildings was done with the assistance of slave labor. Students, when they came to seminary, brought their enslaved people with them. We know that Three of the four founding faculty members were slaveholders, and we know that many of the members of the Board of Trustees were also slave owners. Virginia Seminary was very much a part of the larger Virginia slave society. To some, it may be hard to picture ministers casually walking around a seminary's campus with slaves trailing behind them. Well, to Ebony as a historian, she was already too familiar with the intimate connection between the Protestant church and the slave trade. I know how active the Protestant church was in the slave trade. I've been to West Africa. I've been to the slave dungeons where there are Protestant churches in the slave dungeons. If anything, I just saw how central the church was to the comings and goings and movings of all of this. And in that same time period, not too far from the seminary in Washington, D.C., there were nuns who literally owned and sold slaves. So at this point, you may be thinking, isn't there an obvious contradiction here? I mean, nuns selling slaves, slave dungeons with churches attached, and seminarians with enslaved people trailing behind them? Well, I was a little confused too. So I also spoke to Reverend Judy Fentress-Williams, 
scholar and professor of Old Testament at the Virginia Theological Seminary, about how those faith leaders could say, love your neighbor as thyself, and then enslave thy neighbor. I think the culture of slavery was pervasive. I think slavery is baked into American identity. Part of what we bring to the Bible is our context. And to the extent that we benefit from a particular reading of scripture, it is difficult to take ourselves out of that. I think there are Christians who are misreading the text um, and misreading it because it advantages them to do so. So, to Reverend Fentress Williams, the presence of slavery at this institution and others like it just showed how fundamentally slavery was ingrained in America's systems and even how those systems live on today. I mean, some enslaved people on the seminary's campus even came from plantations like Mount Vernon, which was George Washington's estate. Francis Scott Key, who wrote The Star-Spangled Banner, was one of the institution's founders and was a slaveholder himself. And not too far from the seminary in Jamestown, Virginia, was where the first slave ship docked. The 1619 Project looks at the history of slavery and locates a ship that came to Virginia. Here we are in the state of Virginia at an older institution whose identity can't be separated from the experience of slavery. It does make me glad that this institution is making an important and innovative gesture. To Reverend Fentress Williams, having an institution that was so heavily tied to America's legacy of slavery made this reparations program significant. But this wasn't the only reason that she sees this program as important. It's also personal for her. There's a house on this campus and the basement is where the slaves live. And I had a chance to enter that space. And for me, I feel as though that's an opportunity to be in the space where the spirits of my ancestors suffered. So I, in this place, on this campus, recognize that I am at an institution that participated in and benefited from the oppression of my ancestors. And for Ebony Davis, who works directly in this program, she also shares this personal connection. The stories just make me emotional though, um, because you you think, oh, that was so long ago. Oh, it was, you know, during the days of slavery. How could the, the effects of that still be here today? And then, and then I get on the phone with, descendants and they tell me how one of the persons who would have been a shareholder died as a baby from bronchitis because they just didn't have money to go to a doctor. And like, that's the the legacy, like that's the lasting effects. And it feels very familiar because as a Black woman, I can identify with these stories. I come from a very big and proud family. And I would imagine if somebody called my 97-year-old grandmother, she would have some things to say that might break your heart too. For the descendants of those at the seminary and even the surrounding residents in Alexandria, this program symbolizes a sort of long-awaited atonement. In the Old Testament world, the whole concept of sacrifice was connected to people's atonement for their sins. That there was an action you took in recognition of something you had done that was wrong. What I love about some sacrifices, particularly in the book of Leviticus, is that people were asked to sacrifice based on what they had. This model is useful because there are communities that will think, well, yes, we participated in the system, but we don't have a lot. Well, what do you have? Um, What can you bring? What can you contribute? That was Reverend Judy Fentress Williams, scholar and professor of Old Testament at the Virginia Theological Seminary, and Ebony Davis, associate for multicultural ministries programming and historical research for reparations. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Amara Evering. Last year, 2023, 
was the warmest year on Earth since global record-keeping began in 1850, with NASA recording an average temperature of 1.2 degrees Celsius above mid-20th century levels. The effects of global climate change are already being felt in the form of stronger storms, droughts, floods, and rising sea levels, and voters in the U.S. and across the world are demanding action. Mark Hertzgard, executive director of Covering Climate Now, spoke to this global political question in an interview with Democracy Now!'s Amy Goodman and Juan Gonzalez earlier this month. Welcome back, Mark, to Democracy Now! Lay out what you're calling for in this election year 2024. Thanks, Amy. And I have to say that the comments that Michael Mann is making right now about how the climate denialism has uh, intimidated scientists into not speaking about their findings, that has happened exactly the same way within our profession of the news media. For too many years, many of our colleagues in the media have been intimidated by these right-wing attacks and have come to think that, well, I don't really understand climate science. I guess I better not talk about it. And uh, you see that now in uh, uh, the election, 2024 election. Uh, which is that uh, there's a lot of coverage, obviously, about the campaigns, especially here in the United States at the presidential level, but very little connection of the fact that uh, these elections are essentially going to shape humanity's climate future. Uh, And not just in the United States. About half of the world's population is entitled to vote in various elections around the world. We just heard Alan Nairn's report from Indonesia. Very important election there. India is coming up, European Union, US, South Africa, Mexico. These elections are going to decide which governments are in power or not in power over this next critical five-year period when we absolutely have got to bend the uh, climate pollution trajectory down if we're going to uh, preserve a livable planet on this future. So these elections could not be more important from a climate perspective, and yet a lot of the media is uh, still not making that connection. And I can tell you that part of the reason is a fear on their part. I just had this conversation the other day with a very prominent journalist, uh, fear that we will look partisan if we point out, for example, that here in the United States, one of the major political parties is still essentially denying climate change. That's the Republicans, of course, and Donald Trump, who has pledged to drill baby drill from the first day back if he were to be a return to the White House. Uh, it's not our job as journalists to censor ourselves because one party or one candidate decides that they're going to deny climate science. We owe it to the public to report that to the public without fear or favor. And and I wanted to ask you, Mark, in terms of how the Democratic Party has been handling the issue of of, uh, climate change during this election season, because there couldn't be a more stark difference between the, uh, the two candidates in terms of of climate science, at least in terms of their acknowledgement uh, of the crisis that we're facing. Right. Uh, but is is the Democratic Party really pushing forth as, as strongly as it could on this issue? You know, Juan, I think it's hard to know. I, I Because so much of what we in the public hear about from the Democratic Party or from the White House is filtered again through the prism of the news media. And, uh, for example, the Inflation Reduction Act, certainly the biggest uh, climate legislation ever passed, probably in the world, certainly here in the United States, and passed, by the way, by a Democratic president through a Congress that is still has a lot of Republican control in it. Um, The White House has been very frustrated that that the general public does not know about that. And the White House has tried and tried, it says, to put Biden on the road to talk about this. And it's not getting the kind of press coverage that uh, at least I would have expected. So I think that you're certainly right that there is a huge contrast between a Democratic uh, and a Republican approach to this. Is Biden's climate record perfect? Far from it. Uh, The U.S. is still now the biggest oil and gas producer in the world. You know, he green-lighted the, the Willow Project, oil project up in Alaska. But he just put a pause on uh, liquid natural gas export facilities across the Gulf Coast. So as voters, um, I think it's very important for people who are out there as citizens to remember that, to quote uh, my colleague Rebecca Solnit, when you're thinking about your vote, your vote is not a valentine, with all due respect to valentines tomorrow. Your vote's not a valentine. It's a chess move. You don't have to approve of everything a certain candidate does 
in order to say, I'm still going to vote. If you care about climate, vote. If you care about fairness, vote. If you care about peace, vote. Uh, this week, Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez marked the five-year anniversary of the introduction of the Green New Deal. We are going to go and we have to go to every single frontline community and ensure that they are not left behind. We're going to create millions of unionized jobs across the United States of America. We are going to revamp our transmission lines, install solar, commit to geothermal, and we are going to transition this country to clean and renewable energy and create a, a, a sustainable working class in the process of doing it. Mark Hertzgard, we just have 30 seconds, uh, but again, that's AOC celebrating now five years since Green New Deal was introduced. And that Green New Deal is what gave us the Inflation Reduction Act, somewhat uh, trimmed down from the original vision of the Green New Deal. But that's where, again, elections are important. AOC ran, took on a moderate uh, Democrat who everybody said was unbeatable. She beat him and injected all of this new energy and great ideas into the American political discourse like the Green New Deal. And I think that's exactly why we in the press have to be paying much more attention to the climate issue here in 2024. That's Mark Hertzgard, executive director of Covering Climate Now, speaking with Democracy Now!'s Amy Goodman and Juan Gonzalez earlier this month. To learn more about efforts to strengthen climate and election reporting, visit CoveringClimateNow.org. That's CoveringClimateNow.org. And that's our show for today. Rest in peace and power, Askia Muhammad. Thanks to our engineers. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Thank you for listening and supporting Jazz and Justice Radio in the nation's capital. Celebrating 20 years, the new African Film Festival presented by AFI and Africa World Now Project brings the vibrancy of African filmmaking from all corners of the continent and across the diaspora to the DMV at the AFI Silver Theater and Cultural Center in downtown Silver Spring from March 15th to the 28th. The festival features 26 films from 16 countries, including three years' premieres and discussions with filmmakers. Explore the diversity of new filmmaking from Africa at the 2024 New African Film Festival. Tickets and full schedule at afi.com forward slash silver. That's afi.com forward slash silver. Or call 301-495-6700. 301-495-6700. WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. The Collision, where sports and politics smash. Thursdays at 10 a.m. and on iTunes and Google Play. WPFW, Washington, D.C. This Wednesday, February 28th, WPFW celebrates 47 years of speaking truth to power, powered by the people. In celebration and commemoration of those whose shoulders this station stands on, we present Freedom Highway, a salute to SNCC, Dory Ladner, and 47 years of Jazz and Justice Radio. From 5 a.m. until midnight, we will illuminate and interrogate the work and legacy of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the pivotal role many SNCC members played in the creation of WPFW. We will also be honoring one of SNCC's beloved Daughters of the Movement, Dory Ladner. That's Freedom Highway, a salute to SNCC, Dory Ladner, and 47 years of Jazz and Justice Radio. This Wednesday, February 28th, 5 a.m. until midnight. WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. Imperialism through the neo-colonial dominated ECOWAS, economic community of West African states, is complicit in obstructing the duly elected PAI Tawaranka coalition of Guinea-Bissau from its rightful place in the National People's Assembly. Turn out Monday, February 26, to demand that the National Assembly of Guinea-Bissau be opened and the democratically elected leadership be allowed to execute their people's mandate and revolutionary platform. 
That's Monday, February 26th at 12 noon at the African Union Representational Mission to the USA, 1640 Wisconsin Avenue, Northwest D.C. To find out more, go online to blackallianceforpeace.com slash events slash Open Guinea Bissau ANP. WPFW is your station for jazz and justice, building a better world one broadcast at a time. This is John Kane, and I want to invite you to join me right here on WPFW on Fridays at 2 p.m. for Let's Talk Native. I will deliver guests and commentary each week on the real